Oh my gosh, we are so excited about this episode. In fact, I don't want you to miss anything by wasting time with the preamble. So here's a short story. I met Craig Foreman when we both were supposed to talk at the incredible South by Southwest event in March of 2020, right as the world shut down with COVID-19. We attended each other's virtual sessions, which is not the same as being in person, but we discovered a shared interest in organizational culture, in issues facing men, and so, so much more. Craig recently served as the lead people scientist with Culture Amp, where he supported organizations in building effective people and culture strategies. At the core of Craig's work is his mission to help the world work better by improving the places in which we work. He's now founder of Culture C Consulting, and I am honored that he's sharing his time with us today. You do not want to miss this one. Imagine if work was actually good for people, not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Hello, good morning. Good morning. This is May, Mo, and Craig Foreman, who's coming in from, you know, the Bay Area, Mo's and Bend, and I'm in Laguna Beach today. So we are on the West Coast. We're handling it this morning. Um, Mo, will you introduce Craig and how you know him? Not his formal bio, but just the things you adore about him. Why is he here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And good to see you, May and Craig. So happy to have you both here on the pod. So Craig and I met in a very funny way. I was thinking about it the other day because I was scheduled to give a talk at South by Southwest. It was my third time giving a talk there in 2020 for my new book, which had just come out in 2019. And I was like scanning the other programs, getting all excited because I had been to South by Southwest before. I was like, I got to I gotta meet the people I got to meet. And I saw a topic that Craig was talking about that had to do with men and masculinity and leadership. I was like, I got to talk to this guy like this because I had just given my TED talk on that subject only for women's role in healthy masculinity. I was like, this would be cool. So I just pinged him. I think it must have been on LinkedIn and or maybe it was through South by Southwest. I was like, hello, you don't know me, but let's get together in tech in Austin and we'll meet and we'll talk about all the things. And you were like, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then about (laughs) three weeks later, everything in the world is canceled, including South by Southwest. And it pivoted, pivoted to virtual, which I was one of the people who did virtual session, but Craig and I kept talking. We missed each other that time around. We had a couple of different conversations and I was just really interested in both that original topic that piqued my mind, which was how did you get so interested in the way that men show up in work and in life is something that matters to me deeply. And also the emphasis on culture, which is, of course, something we, we have. So that was sort of the beginning. And we've just sort of stayed connected in that process. We've never met at South by Southwest since, um, but I've followed his work closely and feel super honored to have him in community at this point. Is that how you remember it? You know, it's funny. I was I, like with, with COVID, everything was such a blur. Sometimes I forget. I, I remember our conversations. I remember talking, but I, I, when you were saying that, it was nice to think, remember that, like, oh, yeah. So, no, I just remember our calls. I remember just always enjoying you. And then, you know, 
you say it like that, but then I, you know, was building community with Coltramp at the time and also like working with you and bringing you into that and like yes, how yes. You've, been, you've been part and how much value you've brought to so many people through that community. And I just didn't remember the specifics, like sometimes those get fuzzy, but right. I, I just remember, I remember other, other spots. And it's so interesting to hear you recount that because like, wow, it brought me back, you know, South by Southwest, I remember that was the first big blow. I remember, I remember waiting, going, maybe it won't, maybe it won't, this will pass. Maybe it won't. You know, Cause that was the first year. I mean, I finally did. I mean, that was like a lifelong to be accepted to go to South by Southwest, like all the work that, I mean, that was a year earlier that started, finally yes. got accepted. I was like, Oh my God. I mean, I remember when I got the note, I was like, I got it. I'm it's, a huge South by Southwest. Yes. it's so And then exciting. it just started fading. I was like watching the world fade, fade, fade. And I was like, maybe, maybe, maybe. And like, they called it. I was like, boom. Like I remember that was the first big COVID blow. That was no, yeah. no, it was good for me too. And I remember thinking that exact thought. I was like, they aren't going to cancel South by South, but they're not going to do it. It's too big. It's too many hundreds of thousands of people in pet. There's no way they're going to cancel. I was working with a client and then sure enough, I saw the email at like four 30. I was like, it's done. This is bigger than we thought. So yeah. But you know what? We recorded it. I have, you know, we ended up turning, it was tricky the next year we recorded it. And then I reapplied and I went and spoke there in 2020, was that 22? Yeah, 2022. So awesome. I got, I did I it. I saw so, that last year. Yeah, good job. It's fun, huh? It was, it's, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Tiring. I, every time I go there, I come back and it takes about three or four days to get myself reorganized. But exactly. Um, exactly. It's quite. Here we are on the other side and, you know, it's just wild when you recount and here we are, look at the world now and where we're heading and how much the world has changed, how much to stay the same. And just all these conversations like have taken a, a whole new approach. Well, yeah. okay, Craig. You and I don't really know each other all that well, but we are going to know each other within these 45 minutes, by gosh. But the first way, will you explain your job like I was in second grade, please? (laughs) That's funny because I have two children and for the longest time, they, you know, would have a hard time explaining my job. And one day they just started, they said, he's Culture Craig. So my job is I'm Culture Craig. (laughs) Um, Your name is Craig and and it's got alliteration. I, I did start, I started that. It wasn't like they came up with it, but like, it was just, you know, it's just funny joke around here. Cause I have this like moniker and kind of known in the world as culture Craig. So when, if people would ask like, what's your dad do or whatever, they'd just be like, he's culture Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Look, what would I say to you if you were in second grade? I'd say that I would say, think about, think about school and think about how you want to go to school and you want to enjoy school and learn and, you know, feel good that, you know, like they, they have like, recognition programs at school where you get fishies put up on the wall. Like I'm doing the same thing with organizations. I'm trying to help, you know, people get grow up and they go to work and they have to work in, in companies. That's where they spend their time. Just like your mom and dad do. And you see how much time they spend at work and like go to work and, and feel good about it and enjoy it and not, you know, have a bad experience. So they can come home and, and be better humans and people. And um, so I help workplaces just probably like, you know, you like your teacher in your classroom. So, so something to that angle of trying to connect it back to like kind of their experience. Um, it's funny that my kids are a little bit older now, but there were things at the time that were specific they were doing in school. And I, I would tie the dots to that. So, but I, you know, I'd say I try to make the workplace mm-hmm. better. People go to work and it's a lot of time you spend at work and it shouldn't be a good experience. And they like the people they're with and they're treated well. So the funny part is that like, that makes total sense to kids probably. They're like, yeah, that sounds like a great job. You should do that. And that like, we have a whole podcast trying to figure out what that does. You know, I mean, we're like still trying to parse that out as adults, which I love. I'm here for it. It's, it hits so, on the thing I say often, like, 
at a certain level, really, it's simple and it's so hard. And I think that's what you just said. So I mean, hard. There's a part of us that knows it. Like when someone, when a manager, you hear somebody talk about like, well, I don't know. Or my person, this person on my team just like lost somebody in their family. Like, I know I deal with that. How am I supposed to? And the irony is we've, we've convinced ourselves that that's tricky. And it's like, if that was your friend, if that was somebody, you know exactly what to do. You're a human. Yes. We've, we've told ourselves in this weird make-believe world, we don't know how to handle it. And the right. iron, and it is hard. I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to marginalize it. Like dealing with people and emotions, mm -hmm. and especially if you are still working on your own is really hard, but yeah. you know what to do. The, the game, the funny part is that you've been told you don't know what to do. Yeah. So what we don't know is how to do this weird thing that we're doing called work. Well, it's also or that the rules are somehow different when you yeah. get to work. Well, and that's what I was thinking, May. Thank you for saying that because I think the it's the rules side, both the law, you know, the law gets in trouble with how we how we feel we can treat each other in terms of examples like what you just said, Craig. I remember I had a guy one time who called me kind of in a panic because he had a had a it was during the big uptick of the Me Too movement and he mm -hmm. had a long term colleague who had lost her spouse. They had worked together twenty five years and he was nervous she was coming back to work and his instinct was to give her a hug, but he was afraid to give her a hug because he didn't want to get in trouble for sexual assault. I, I was like, this is not an assault. This is a normal human response to a 25 year relationship with a key colleague and friend. And so, but there's this fear about the law. I think that we get confused about that. We also get, as you said, May, like this idea that there's rules that govern how we be with each other that we somehow imagine can supersede our very humanity, you know, which is uh, not actually real. You know, um, so I, I think it's uh, it's an interesting kind of bait and switch that we've convinced ourselves for the past hundred plus and years. All, yeah, exactly. We've all bought into it. We're, you were born and we're swimming in it. We don't even know it. And I think I'm thinking about there's a guy, Jason Lortzen, who I really appreciate. He's big in performance management, but mm -hmm. I heard him talk. I heard him talking and it really stuck with me. He said, you know, he was talking about the adage of like for the manager and particularly Mo, like may, I don't know if, if this is exactly what a manager hears today, but I think we can all relate to this idea of like, don't get too close. Don't do too friendly. Right. And he said, but why do you, why, why is that embedded in? And his hypothesis is because the subtle message is don't get too close. Cause you're going to have to do something mean to them one day. Mm. You're going to have to hurt them one day. So don't get too oh. close. And if you think about it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. That's kind of what the story was. Like you're probably going to fire that person one day. Don't be too nice. Right. But like the flip is, yes, you might. In in this world of of of, of workland, you might. It, it may come to that. But can you do it with heart? Can you do it with compassion? Can you be friendly to a person and one day say, "This isn't working. How do we how do we untangle it the right way?" Yeah. You know, we both yeah. we're both in it. You know, but like the message was, don't be too close because you're like think about how that sets. Right. our whole culture up for like, don't be too nice because you're going to be mean one day. As opposed to like, don't get too close because actually you might change their lives. Like you have the capacity to change this person's life and trajectory of their but that family. That means the whole organization needs to then develop managers that way, support managers totally. in that way. It, it makes things a little more complicated. I mean, when we talked about it, it's so easy, but to an organization, it's much easier to say, let's, let's take the emotions out of it and just have policies and procedures. Yeah, so right. totally. it is hard. It is hard to, how do you, how does it at least to change for a company to say, we have a thousand employees and we're going to build heart and soul into our decision-making. Yeah. We're going to, we are off to a hundred mile an hour start here. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. We went very quickly from second grade to like, like high it. school. May let's, yeah. let's reel it back in. <laughs> Shot it out of the park here. Okay. Mo, I don't want to cut you off, but I want to just like, there was a moment, Craig, where you were not culture, Craig. So will you tell us, how did you become culture, Craig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you decide to care about culture? Because quite honestly, 
um, from where I sit, it seems very convenient to not care about culture. <laughs> like a lot of businesses out there get to choose not to actually. Not for very long, it seems like. You're going to have to at some point or you have a culture that you're just ignoring. I don't know. But that it seems sometimes convenient to just decide that's something that we'll deal with later. So I'm wondering why you decided to put this forefront in your career. How did you become Culture Craig? And like what pieces of it really still fire you up? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think if I think back, like, I mean, it's easy to paint, you know, connect the dots looking backwards. Like I always cared. I always cared a lot about people. I always was really interested and intrigued by people. I also like my life got disrupted. My parents split up when I was young. There was a lot of moving around. So I think people, both that in, inherent interest and my life experience, I had to lean on that. That was like, that was how I adapted. So I moved to new places I had to fit in. So I became pretty good at reading people. It's just whatever, all those different reasons. I love people. I also had to, you know, to pay for college, I had to do it in the military. So I spent four years in the military. So there was a lot that happened. It didn't, it, you know, I was always passionate about people, but I didn't know where it was going to go. Um, I ended up getting my undergraduate degree in business, wanted to be in California, moved out to California, got set up. I ended up in higher ed and then it was time to go back to school for my master's degree. And I just couldn't pull the plug on an MBA. And then I found an organizational psychology program. And Good call. I, yeah, I, I did that. And I was like, this is awesome. I loved it. This was about 2011. And I just knew that was the space I wanted to work in. It wasn't, when I say 2011, I mean, it was in the Bay Area. Tech was quiet. It was just getting ready to pick back up. So it was not the same scene it is, has been. So then I got into ed tech um, after the degree and then kind of got my way to HR tech through like client services. Just get, kept getting closer and closer. It was, like, it was like I was moving towards this thing. I, you know, I knew I wanted to do it. So I ended up in HR tech companies, <clears throat> a company called Achievers, which was recognition and rewards. So I was finally like working with organizations around how they're thinking about this. But I was still like in the more of the day-to-day weeds of the tool. Um, I went to LinkedIn for a period of time, you know, again, working on a, a product that they had, uh, were looking at around uh, referrals. And then about six years ago, a company called Culture Amp was growing in America. It's an Australian-based company. I mean, there's probably a decent amount of people that are listening now that have heard of Culture Amp at this point in time, building tools to help organizations really like measure and assess and think about culture. And, but with a philosophy of very like of a human centered approach to, to, to culture and helping organizations bring culture back in. And they hired me and put me on their people science team. So I finally had the opportunity, like all the, all the kind of, I felt like it was the first time in my career I was truly in flow. Like I was at a senior level strategically being able to go in, not really deal with the day to day of like, was your file loaded or was, you know, <clears throat> and helping organizations think about how to use tools like this. You know, I also will say that I got really clear even before I got to Coltramp on what my mission and purpose was, which was to help the world work better and by improving at the time I said the places we work. Now I say how we work. I think that's really important to, to say because everything shifted when I got clear on that. And I understood what I was like. I didn't know exactly what that meant day to day, but I knew what I was doing. And then Coltramp, you know, I, I've, I've recently left to start consulting, but I mean, this is a new thing. And but I spent six years there and the opportunities, if, you know, we went from 150 people to, to over a thousand in the six years, we were big on putting on events and bringing people together. So I got very involved in facilitating conversations and speakers. And then we started doing big conferences and just by volunteering, I ended up ending up on our marketing team, on our global events team, building our culture first. And around this time, kind of culture, this is like when culture Craig sort of started to take shape. Like I was in the world, I was kind of being very public. I was speaking. It was, you know, and, and then, so I, I ended up, you know, I got to build events all over the globe, big, I got to like smaller events for senior leaders. And then when, just before COVID, we decided we're bringing all these people together. Is this community? Like what, what is community? What are we doing? We rethought our community approach and decided what if we created chapters around the globe of people that want to come together and have these conversations and look at ways that they can impact their local community. And then 
we put that, we organized that, we got it together. It was going to be in person and then COVID hit, mm-hmm. but we just doubled down and we just said, how do we do this virtually? How do we build a community? And I mean, Mo's, Mo's had a little, little taste, but I can say that we're, we know we've, you know, there's over a hundred chapters globally now running close to 200 events a year. Uh, it's amazing what's happened there of, of creating a community of people that care and want to, and want to like change the way the world works and, and, you know, want to find other people. So many people feel so alone. And what I learned is, how many people around the world like feel like they're, they're the only one that feels like this is important they don't have to do and there's so many so that's a i gave you the full answer but that's kind of how culture Craig came to be and now i am working with organizations helping organizations embed really take a data-driven approach to, to to culture there's so much you know how do you how do you marry those two and i think a lot of organizations don't even quite understand how to do it well so when you say that thing about kicking the can down the road or not dealing with it. I don't even think they understand what they're dealing with, how to deal with it. They do mean it, they want it, but it gets so overwhelming and it doesn't have to be. But I just think organizations need a little support on like how to like bring, really bring some data in and like this doesn't have to be as hard as as they're making it, but they have to like be willing to shift and change, so. I love the way that it sort of happened accidentally, like setting business, but then being like, no, I don't want an MBA and then and, and getting curious through the org psych, which is very similar to sort of how I came into this work. But I just did the math, you guys, and this is something interesting to me. So first of all, I started my program, we probably have the same masters, 22 years before you, mm. which is making me feel very old. I'm like, dear God, I am really old. But also, no. as well, as you were talking though about data and helping organizations to be better in order to improve the world, you know, which is clearly part of my personal mission and our organizational mission. I remember one of my graduate school professors way back then in, you know, the eighties, you know, teaching us about McGregor's theory X theory Y, which was in the early 1900s. And I find myself like, this is where I get this fire in my belly because I'm like, we have known this stuff about how people thrive in the workplace for a long, long time. And Ed Tomey knew it. He taught it to me. I'm doing the work. You got it in your graduate school experience. And, and you know, McGregor was talking about it way back in the day. And I just find myself sitting with both an intensity of saying, why is it that we ignore what we know? And I know, I know why. I mean, I know that our, our economic models, you know, really shape uh, profit as a North Star orientation, et cetera, et cetera. But I also have more hope than I've had in a while in this particular moment, because I think that COVID has revealed has revealed the really dark underbelly. And I'm grateful for that because it's like, okay, we know that, you know, org change theory is no pain, no gain. So now we got the pain super present in front of us that organizations across the globe have really seen uh, what happens when people are not thriving at work. So I feel hope, but I also feel like, come on, come on world. I'm I'm so with you. And I think that um, I also, I try to hold a a little empathy too, for the whole, the bigger picture. Like, I think that I think we're still working on a model that as much as it doesn't fit with us today in the fifties and sixties probably worked when we were building factories and we needed a few people to make decisions and a lot of hands to to, to enact those decisions. And I think, I think inertia aside from organizational psychology, just like human psychology, inertia, so powerful. And then you throw money in there. Like there was as much as people talked about it prior to COVID, I think there was so much inertia that who was going to stop and really blow it all up to rebuild it. Right. Like just keep doing what we've been doing. But I think if they just like look at the world that we are in and the things we're talking about wanting, you know, talk about, in, you know, we want innovation, we want collaboration, we want psychological safety, which is true. But then I'd map it to like, okay, but we're working in these hierarchies that we designed in the fifties and sixties. They don't promote that. It's like when you know, I was in the military, like, like you do different things. Like you don't want that in the military. Right. So 
we've we've built we've designed our organization structurally around one thing. We're trying to do something else. And so for me, COVID was like probably the gift of what you just said of like it was a, a handbrake on inertia that you you get once in a lifetime. So to all these people that we're all sitting around, really, Mo, you probably experienced this. You go to these conferences and it's like, everybody's talking. What are we doing? It was fun. And now I feel like it's like, this is action time to all those people that want to yeah. change stuff because there's a moment that will close where yes. we get to reset and rethink and yep. then we'll set the stage for the next 50 years of the workplace. And I think that's the gift is that like, I and, and there are, there are greedy, bad capitalism and all that stuff. And then there's just humans that like, sounds good, but I got to get up and go to work and make money today. And I don't have time to change my organizational culture to, you know, like, so it just keeps getting kicked down the road. So I yeah. hope that this is the moment. That's my kind of call to action when I'm talking to leaders or people like you are the answer. There is yeah. no more play. Like the, they used to come together and just like, who has the playbook? If I find the playbook, I can figure it out. And yeah. there's no more playbook. Well, no, and also it starts so much smaller than that. I was curious when you were talking, because you mentioned your military background, I was I was reminded, I had this flashback of my cousin who has sadly now deceased. He died very young, 30, 34, but he was a Marine. And I remember Matt telling me about his experience. He was a he was Semper Fi all the way, all the way, right? I mean, he he was really, really loved his experience in the Marines. And one of the reasons for that was his commanding officer. Like he had he was seen by that guy at a time when he needed to be seen as a young man when he entered the military. And it stayed with him for the rest of his sadly kind of short career around feeling seen, feeling connected, feeling like what he did mattered. mattered. Even when it was really, really hard, you know, boot camp for the Marine Corps is no joke. And Matt was um, able to complete what he needed and able to have an esteemed career in the military based on that one guy that he worked with for those first two years. And I think yeah. that gets to what you're saying around, yeah, it can get overwhelming. How do we change it all? How do we change the systems? But actually it comes down to how we treat each other day to day. And especially, of course, as you said, for the leaders, the people leaders in the system. It's not really like, I'm not going to deal with culture. That That becomes the culture then. Like everybody has culture, actually. Culture Every place has like, culture. If, you... if it's like, oh, we're going to wait for it, then that's the culture that you have is that we just wait to change things or we just keep them the way that they are. And I think there's like, oh, we'll just deal with culture later. It's like, we already dealt with it. Like it's that, that's what it is. Okay, cool. But just as long as we're clear that that is what's happening, I think it's like a very interesting thing. Of like, that can we means- pause? Can I, can I share one thing that I think is really important whenever I have conversations about culture? Because like there are certain words yeah. in this world that we say culture and like, I don't know what you're listening. Like, if I ask everyone <laughs> of your listeners, I'm going to get. So I always think it's really important. Not that I, I'm the only one, but just to share my, what I, how I think about culture. So it helps yeah, yeah, frame yeah, what we're it. talking about, right? Like, first of all, to me, culture, and to your point, culture exists, period. doesn't matter. So like yeah. if, if you're, and, I, and it exists at every level in the organization too. Like if you're, you know, really junior, like, well, it doesn't matter. I don't have influence. And like you sit and you gossip, and you, like that's your contribution, like it or not, that's your contribution. Of course, the level of influence, especially in hierarchies, it, it matters. But culture to me is the way we do things around here, period. Like, so what I mean by that is when I go to the grocery store, there's a culture. And when I come home, there's a culture. And when I go to work and so and what I think is fascinating as humans is we are moving in and out and like the rules change, how we can act changes. But that's a much bigger thing than I think what, when I'm talking to audiences around organizational culture, it's really important to differentiate. No matter what we do things around here in my, in my family, in my home, it can be dysfunctional, but it's going to probably stay together. Like, we're, it, like it doesn't matter. Organizational culture, 
how do we do things around here to achieve the mission of this, this, this thing? Like there's a purpose, there's a mission. If you don't achieve it, it dissolves, it goes away. So I right. think what we're talking about is how do we do things around here to achieve the purpose of this gathering of humans that if it doesn't exist, and that's, like I said, there's a lot of cult, the grocery store is not going away. The, my family's not going away. Your workplace, if it doesn't succeed, it goes and you move on to another place and there's a new culture. And so I think that's a really important distinction. And, and like, so then that goes back to this whole thing in military. And when I work with organizations is like, I don't judge culture, you know, culture me is not like all warm, fluff, fluffy, or it's, it's the military's job. Like, like the 82nd airborne division can get 70,000 people anywhere in the world in 24 hours. What's the culture to do that? Right? Like it's not, it's not everybody has to say, and let's collaborate. It is training. It is policies and procedures that change very slowly because 70,000 people have been trained on them. It is everything and is looking clarity. <clears throat> role clarity. It's hierarchy. Yep. It's command and control. It's what you want in that situation. So what's the, what are the values? How do you organize this, the structure to do that? Like Marines, they have a code. You'd never leave your brother behind. Like there are things that make that all work. Now switch that to an organization that says we want to bring, you know, collaboration and technology to change the world. If you're being honest, what's your culture to do that? If you're, if you're out in the world making money and you're a, a Wall Street and you're like, you know, loud and proud, we're about greed, we're about money, we're about hustle, we're about competition then just say it like yeah. that's okay competition <laughs> you know, i would i just rather yeah. know and say build that culture with the people that want to build that culture but so but i do want to differentiate because i think it's really important to frame that up when we're talking about culture because it's such a vast thing that when i'm thinking about culture at organizations i'm thinking about how do you build the right way we do things around here that are going to allow you to achieve the mission and be successful at what you're trying to do with your people. Absolutely. Completely in sync with how we say it. And I love what you just said. And May, I saw you crack up. Our listeners cannot see the video, but May just like lost her cookies when Craig said, like, if you're just all about green, you're going to make money and that's your big goal. Yeah. yeah. I think that is what would be more honest and transparent to the employees, but instead they don't. They, they, they either don't pay attention to it or they don't really specify that intention. And so people feel what is real, which is that they don't trust it. They're like, well, wait a second. You're telling yeah. me that this product is really doing this thing, but it looks like it's just filling up landfills. And so, so they get really confused, you know, and they don't, they don't trust what it is that they're behind because it's actually not authentic. <laughs> the other thing, and this ties something made, you said something you said earlier, which I just want to say is that if you're in a capitalist society, which we live in, one of the things that I think is genuinely problematic is that if you are making money hand over fist because the market really wants your product, right? To a certain degree, the system itself perpetuates success, even with a crappy, toxic culture, because yeah. you're making money hand over fist and the market is saying, I want that thing. We need that thing. And we don't really care as long as we get that thing. And so the organization doesn't have a pressure to say, like, actually, we want to be a different culture that is not as toxic or not as dangerous for humans or not as bad for the environment. And so to me, that's there's a strong relationship between the company culture and the market they serve as well. Yeah. And being able to be in yeah. sync around that and and notice notice that because we see people always say that to me all the time. How can how can a, how can this company have such a toxic culture? And I'm like, because they're making money hand over fist and they don't, it doesn't matter enough right now. They haven't had enough pressure internally or externally to say that there's a better way. And, uh, and I get that. I mean, I understand that cognitively from a practical perspective. 
the piece you said about like if they just say it I'm cracking up because I feel like I like that's what I want everybody to do but it reminds me of the story of Shackleton and Shackleton trying to find people to be on his boat you know and he put an ad in the, the as the story goes I don't know he put an ad in the newspaper and said I'm going on this adventure and you probably will die um if you're up for that then come and he got a full boat of people. And then when they got stuck and they almost did die, no one was surprised. <laughs> and everybody just like got on board. He signed up like, for an adventure. Like they got an adventure. Yeah, he like, told them like, this is scary and risky. Like that's how yeah. many young people joined the military for that reason. And like the funny here, just to, 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 to wrap that up, it's funny. And uh, the, the term that I heard once that I just love to this day is like, they call companies, it's like, it's like don't catfish. <laughs> like companies catfishing, totally. you know, like say... Because to Mo, to your point, like, I don't care what you put on the wall, but like, if I walk in and see that, remember I talked about culture and like the fact, think about us as humans that we really can walk how fast, you don't even think about it cognitively, how fast we can walk in and out of different cultures and assess what's going on. What are the rules? What are the values here? How do I behave? Um, and so we have a very acute sensors around that. And if you tell me one thing and then I'm experiencing something contradictory, automatically I'm not safe. So now what do I do? I huddle up, you know, I get a couple of people together. We gossip, we bash. That person sucks. They should be fired. Now I'm safer. So all of a sudden we create in our attempt to get safety because we don't feel safe, you know, and as I do believe we're packing, we do look for leaders. We want leaders, even if we're not super hierarchical, we like, if we're forced under leadership and then we're not safe under that leadership, I'm supposed to follow you and I don't feel safe. And I don't feel safe because what you're saying is in line with what I'm seeing. I need to find some safety. And this is where all that bad behavior happens. So it's like, yeah, we're going to have an adventure and this is dangerous. Like people work on oil rigs. Like they know, just shoot yeah. straight with them. Because mm-hmm. if it's if it's like, no, this is going to be great. And you get on that boat and all of a sudden you're like, now you hit trouble and think about those people are going to act. And all of a sudden they feel like they just got screwed over. And now we're fate. You yeah, I thought I this was a cruise ship. I'm going to throw the captain over. So that will help <laughs> us save our butts, you know, like. Right. Yeah. We're going to have a meeting. Well, and, I, and we talk about that a lot. I was, I was talking, I can't remember May if it was a podcast conversation that we had or if I was talking to somebody about this in coaching <clears throat> session, but I was talking ab- about psychological safety and what we call a brave space workplace, because I very deliberately used brave space instead of safe space, because I actually, you know, as a lifelong adventurer myself, and I love the Shackleton example, whether the ad existed or not, those people signed on for something that had a lot of risk a lot of exposure. And sure enough, they had a hell of hard time for several years barely <laughs> surviving, right? You know, but there's there, all the things in our life that matter the most do carry some element of risk and we can't guarantee safety. I don't think we can guarantee safety. And this is the invitation that I made to the person I was talking to was like, you know what? I just really want to get Amy Evanson and Dr. Brene Brown on uh, on a round table with me because I want to let them duke it out right? Because Amy's really coined the term psychological safety. Brene has now coined the term brave space. You're welcome. And I'm like, how can we have both? And I understand what we're trying to get with psychological safety, but I also know that when we, that it's helpful, at least for me, it's helpful to remember and to be honest with my employees, that there is inherent risk in everything we do from a hard conversation to saying yes to a job, to saying no to a client, to, you know, there's risk. And so we, it's helpful to just understand what, what is that risk? That's why our palms are sweaty. Doesn't mean we're not going to try to make it super safe for everybody, but it's still vulnerable, you know, at the same time. And I think sometimes that's help, really helpful to understand. You know, Mo, I just had a real, I just came off of a real treat. I just got back. I was in Europe. We ran a couple of events in Europe and our keynote speaker, and it was a small audience, was Esther Perel. 
so fun. So, I think I saw the ad for oh, that. Lucky yeah. you. It was amazing. But you're talking and I'm thinking a lot about what she had to say. And by the way, that you can stream, you can stream the talk. It's on the Culture Amp website. Oh, but nice. she talked, but she talked, I think you just hit on something really important because like safety and bravery and all those things. But her point was like, and I think this is a trap that a lot of leaders get into is like, if you hit, if you hit really scary times and the leader says, you're okay, you're safe. Mm-hmm. And all my indicators say, I'm not. And, and her point was, no, you're not like, so don't say that. Like what you, mm-hmm. what a great leader does is hear you first. Like you're nervous. You're scared. I can see you. Here's what we're going to do about it. Here's what the plan is. Mm-hmm. Here's what's. And I think so, even what we're talking about, we're talking about, oh, the bad actors with the bullshit on the walls, but like even good actors in an attempt yeah. start lying. And now it's like, mm-hmm. how can you tell me I'm safe? Like every other company that we're laying people off and the two weeks later is layoffs. You just told me I was safe. Like, how about you shoot straight and say, these are challenging times. We might have to make hard decisions. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. So we don't have to do that. Yeah. But also hold on the other side, hold space to just be able to see the fear, the anxiety, the concern. So we're kind of lying to people, even when we're trying to be nice sometimes. And that same meter in our heads that's looking for the bad also gets triggered even when you're lying to me, when you're trying to make me feel good. Yes, a good yes. leadership is, and that's a, a easy pitfall, you know, in good leadership is just like, well, I'm just supposed to tell them they're okay. And like, how many right. times have we seen that? You lie, lie, lie. And then all of a sudden the, the shit hits the fan. And now like you were full of it. I don't oh, trust yeah. you. Man, I really hope that you're enjoying this episode with Craig Foreman. We find the culture infinitely interesting to talk about. We can't see it, but it drives everything about how we work. If you're loving this episode and you want to be proactive about the culture of your company, you're probably ready for our unique in-house program, The Inside Job. It is the complete culture package that showcases all of the tools you need to build an unbreakable culture that lasts. It puts mercurial culture straight into the hands of everyday leaders. Email us at info at or check out our website at www.momentum.com. That's M-O-E-M-E-N-T-U-M for details. Back to the show. And I think it comes back to the false story of the hero's journey, you know, which, which is, is like, I'm, which is, you know, I'm going to go away, get some wisdom, come back and tell you about it so that you feel safe and good. And it's, it's the myth that leaders need to be heroic. In other words, you're safe because I'm so amazing that I'm going to protect you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, we are all parents on this and, call. And we don't be too friendly. friendly. Yeah, and don't <laughs> be too friendly. <laughs> but I think it's the same thing with parenting. Like, we want our children to feel safe. It is our job to make them feel safe. And the world out there is inherently dangerous. And they are going to suffer. That You know, they're going to have hurt and pain and... And we, we can protect them from some, but we can't protect them from all. I mean, our job is really to teach them to deal with adversity, isn't it? Not to yes. always, it's like, how do you, how do you show up and stay clear headed when you're, when you're in an unsafe environment versus how to handle that? Yes. We were talking, I was just talking about that with my 20, almost 22 year old, because we were talking about the age, about their early teens. They're a classic girl who, who discovered social media at 14 and really saw the impact of that. And I was talking about my guilt and shame as a parent of mm-hmm. like, I wish I had not had you had a phone, you know? And they were, it was really powerful because they were able to say, actually, I've learned about how to have a healthy relationship with social media. And this is what I do now. This is what I'm trying to do now. It doesn't mean I don't, I don't sometimes fall into the prey of comparative shaming, but I'm working on it. And I was like, okay, good. That's because you're right. That is what we do as parents. And I think that's what we do as leaders. What do you think, May? Mm-hmm. I only have a three-year-old, so 
Yeah. No, not about I'm that. Like, just in general, I'm pulling you into this. I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, you were, uh, were talking. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of empathy for the for the leader who's like who sees stormy waters and sees everybody be so scared, and that their instant reaction is to scoop them up and put them in the nest. And that that seems very natural to me of like, it's okay. I got, I got you. I got you. You know, like, it's okay. When in reality, like you might know more than they do. Actually, you might know what's going to happen, but that, that actually to what you're saying, it doesn't make them feel safer. It makes Mm. them feel even more in the dark. And that is even scarier probably. And Mo and I, we've told this story many times, but Mo and I had this moment right after, right as COVID hit. I have my, so I have a three-year-old. So she was born January of 2020. So I went into, I went into maternity leave and I was like, goodbye. I actually like broke down a month before that in an airport as I was leaving Mo. Cause I was like, something is why I'm never going to see Mo oh, ever again. Something so wild. I was like, nobody. yeah, Mo was, I was like, like man, I'm going to see you in a few months. <laughs> everything's fine I was like everything is not okay she was like you are heck of pregnant you're gonna be okay I was like okay whatever and then COVID happened and I've got my newborn and I'm sitting in this bed like trapped in my house and I showed up to my first day back at work and I went hello do I have a job here and what are we doing <laughs> and Mo essentially said I don't know but get a paddle and we're gonna paddle hard yeah I'm gonna give you a job for as long as I am able to and I was like, okay, thank you. I had like a newborn. I, I am the sole breadwinner of my family and I had a mortgage to pay and I hadn't been outside in like many weeks. So <laughs> if I can get calmed from the truth, which is like not that fluffy, I take a lot of hope in that and like, just tell them, tell them the truth that you can. Yeah. Not the whole truth. Like Mo didn't tell me that we were going to lose the house, you know, but like which is a little bit of truth. It's <laughs> like helpful. Mo could say, yeah, that's possible. That could happen. But like, we're going to work our butts off. And like, we all know that realistically, probably it's not going to happen. But like, but she didn't say, no, no, never, never. That will never happen. Like, right. now you're not safe. Well, I love hearing you tell that story because I, I think it was just such a fleeting moment in time, right? But it, it had so much powerful ramification. One of the powerful ramifications that I remember very clearly, because I think you were the only full-time employee at that time, or maybe I had one or two others, but I remember that you, that when I said that and you and the team were like, okay, and you picked up paddles, the reciprocity there was that I felt calmer. I felt more supported. And I think this is something we forget about a lot with leaders, which is that we need support too. So for me, that mm-hmm. moment also resulted in like, oh, thank goodness. I, I have got my team now in the boat paddling. I'm so glad May's back from leave because I need her help. And you did, which kept you busy and focused and able to feel like you were doing something to support your family. And it helped me feel as a leader, like, okay, I think we can do this perhaps. And mm-hmm. we did, you know, we absolutely came through COVID as a team with no layoffs and, um, and a better business as a result of it. So I think that that's something that is also really powerful is like we tend to think the leader, when the leader is vulnerable in that way or authentic with what's real, that they then somehow somehow are going to be even more alone. But I think the opposite happens. They become more connected, more supported, which helps them do better quality work that's only theirs to do. But don't be too nice because you might have to hurt them, right? Like like yeah. the story, like it's, you're, it's, it's yeah. flipping that whole story of like, yes. we've got all these divides to keep leaders in our collective story about how to not be human. Yeah. And what yeah. you're saying is like well, human works. Craig, I've got a question about two cultures that you live in or that you swim in that I'm mm-hmm. making up a story about. Mm-hmm. One is your family structure mm-hmm. and the other is your work. Mm-hmm. Because my Venn diagram of my 
no one that's listening can see me do this, but like the <laughs> my Venn diagram about work and <laughs> work and my family is like this actually. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. like completely overlapped. And the time yeah. that they're not overlapped is like pretty much sleeping. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't even know. But what is your culture like? What is it like to work for a company that supports culture, what's happening in your life? What's it in like your, to work for a company that works? I'm, I'm, are you asking me about just my personal setup? Or are you asking me about like what it's like for co- you, like like a, a theoretical kind of company that's integrates well with like work life balance? So. <laughs> no, well, like I guess I'm asking you personally, like what does it feel like? to have stuff go on in your personal life that is big and intense and serious and like all consuming and to have a have a work that supports you welcomes you back sees you for who you are and that's the story i'm making up that you have a work culture that does that and a family culture that requires that yeah i think well i think there's a couple of things one is personally i'm really grateful that i did that work that got to that place where i said purpose you know and i talked about because when I stopped trying to do something or be something in the world and just was like, this is what I'm here to do. And like every decision, I was like, does that move me closer to that? I don't care if it's a title or if I'm a director or if I'm a manager. But so I think, and I say that because for a big part of my career, I was chasing the wrong things. And when I got clear on purpose, like the things didn't matter, the titles didn't matter. It was like, am I, am I, and I share that because once I cross over that, then I think this idea of work-life balance kind of shifts. Like I love what I do. It's part of who I am. Like my, my work is a really integrated so I think in some ways I don't have some strange, like, how do I shut this off so I can get back to my family now? Like mm-hmm. when I'm with my friends, I talk, I mean, like, you know, especially with what I do, like, I love what I do. And like, it's a topic that everyone wants to talk about. Everybody has something to say about their workplace, about what, you know, my company could use that or gosh, you should come here. So, and, and I, and it never bores me. I don't mind that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's that piece, but to, so there's, I think for my want for anybody at the individual level is. Can you get to a place in your career where you feel in some way, shape or form that way about your work where you love it? There's clearly a delineation, but like, it's not so awful that like you have to figure out how to Mm -hmm. shut it down versus like, it's an integrated part. Now I have worked now, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm I'm clearly now running a a consultancy, but for six years with Coltramp and other companies and working with a lot of companies that are trying to do this, what's, what's that like? I think a lot about this idea of like regenerative, like almost like like sustainable farming, right? That I think of a great farmer understands that like the value of letting the ground rest is part of the process. The value of like, we got to harvest hard now, we got to sit back here and like seeing the whole cycle. So what that means is like not looking at every day of like, how do I take, 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 take? Like you're just going to keep depleting your soil and having to find new soil all the time. And playing the longer game of like, can you shift the conversation to look, we have, we have to have performance conversations. We have an agreement on output and what's going to happen, but also like, and like, but also seeing the whole human and saying, what's the whole annual cycle look like for that? Like if you're going through something tough, maybe somebody else isn't right now on the team and they can pick up here because when they go through something tough, we're going to pick up and that's as much more sustainable approach. So, and then it allows people to just like start to be honest, like what's going on, you know, like. I mean, I just, I'm such a big fan of like even check-ins, right? Somebody, and if you have eight people over the course of a year, somebody's having a great day, somebody's struggling, somebody didn't get sleep last night because they're a baby, someone is just loving this new project they're on, somebody, and if people can share that, it's just, it, there's always this shift in, like we're humans, like, you know, like it's not true if you come to work and your mom is, is sick with cancer and you can't talk, like it's real, it's there. And if you just said, I'm struggling and my mom's sick, 
that alone in like a check-in round changes everything. And nobody has to do anything differently. It's just knowing that that, okay, so when we're like handing out tasks, maybe I'll pick up a little more because I know what's going on over there. The human, right? Back to the human. Like I know what to do there. I would do that for anybody else if you're struggling. And you know what? And if I trust that I've already been through something where I'm struggling, you picked up the weight for me, guess what? I'm even more likely to do that. So I think it's just creating a culture. It goes back to that thing of like not being scared, just let people show up. You don't have to have all the answers. It's okay. And trusting by doing that and handling it the right way, you create stronger teams because humans want, we are humans in the end of the day. As individuals, we want to take care of each other. We want, you know, half the time we're not taking care of each other because we're not getting taken care of. Therefore, we're not taking care of others. So, you know, I think, I think it's just, it's just like truly accepting this whole, this whole kind of person approach. It doesn't mean, you know, I mean, I've heard pushback on this, bring your whole person to work, but, but like I'll say, somebody said, bring your whole self. And they did like a circle, like, like a donut, like there's still a hole in the middle, bring your whole self to work. Like, it's okay. There's a hole, we all have a hole in the middle. Yeah, we do. So, it's I don't know if that answers your question, man. I mean, I feel like it's kind of like a, it's a long-winded answer, but I think it's just really training. It goes back to what we talked about of like working with our leaders and managers to change the story that you can let, like let the human in the room and we can deal with it. This must be my word of the day, right? But it's like the reciprocity. So May, you know, you, you did that then diagram with your hands of like the overlap as a young mom with a growing family and, you know, sandwich of older generations, et cetera. And you work remotely. Our whole team works remotely. So there's a lot of, you know, people knocking at the door, dogs, like it's not, you're not going to an office that is like sterile or separate. The reciprocity is that, as you said, Craig, like when we are able to see the human and acknowledge it, sometimes the answer is like, for May or for me or for any of our employees, it could be actually, I'm not able to do the job that's expected of me today because I'm ill. I'm, I need a mental health day. I have a, a situation at home that needs my attention. So you make that choice. The reciprocity is that on, there are some days when you make a different choice, which is like, yes, I am tired today because I had a hard weekend, but I know today is a key project and I'm going to show up and I can do it. I'm resilient. I'm tough. I can do it. And here's the way that you could support me dear, dear colleague or fellow employee, you know, to show up even when it's hard. And to me, the reciprocity serves the business and the human, right? Because then we can do hard things and people, you know, sometimes, like you said, Craig, sometimes it might be that somebody just needs to say, I need you to know that the whole family had summer flu this weekend. So I'm coming in a little tired, but I got this right. And, yeah, and bear just, with me. I need an extra day here. And that's just, that's just what we're dealing with, but we know we've got this big thing. And then sometimes it's like, actually, you guys got to take the big thing because I actually am out, you know, for today. And of course that's easier in some environments than others. But I think, you know, for example, like I'm thinking about acute care hospitals where if somebody doesn't show up for their shift, it really can leave. This goes back to every culture, right? Every culture different. Like I want command and control if I'm in the operating room. Like I want the surgeon to be in charge. Like I want everybody to be there. You well, know? totally. But, that, but for me, that becomes even more important then that you have a yes. system and a structure so that when that employee does say, actually, I broke my kneecap and I can't stand in the OR today, that there is a backup of someone who can, you know, mm-hmm. because that's a structural problem. That's not a human being problem. The person yes. has a broken kneecap, you know, they can't stand in the OR, like that's real. And I sometimes yeah. think that we are better at accommodating for that than we are mental health addiction, family needs, and caregiving responsibilities, where somehow it's easier for us to be like, oh, wow, they, they, have, an, they, they have to have their appendix out so we can cover for them, as opposed to like, yeah. they're having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that mean? We shouldn't yeah. have to cover for them. It's like, well, <laughs> hang on, you know? And I think that's changing. I, I, I feel I more hope now than I have in a long time. That I, have a, I, I have a story that came to mind for me that I think really puts it into like real life perspective. 
we had an employee, she was in her mid 20, late, maybe 28 ish. And like, sadly, like pretty suddenly her dad passed away. So she went home um, to be with her family. And she also had a sister who came home as well. And, you know, she called us towards the end of the week. And we're like, stay longer, do what you need to do, take care of, you know, and she was like, really, it's okay. I'm like, we're like, we got you. Her sister worked for another company and, and their policy was like four days. And it was like, she had to hop on a, and she felt this awful experience of like, she was sitting there watching like us. We're like, do what you need. Take the time. We got this. We'll figure it out. And her sister was like rushed back to work. She had her four days. And it was like, number one, it was gut-wrenching to hear that. But then I thought to myself, now I'm an employer. Which employee do I want back? Like, okay, they got they got their employee back after four days. Sad, still needed more time. Her sister had a company where they like let her. So like play the long game. Like when that employee came back and we needed and something else happened, you know, like the commitment and connection to taking care of the rest mm-hmm. of us that she had after she was supported. And then her sister, I wondered how, how committed her sister was when something went south or somebody needed to say, step up where her sister was. So it's like so easy to fall into that trap because that's the policy. That's the thing. But like the human answer was the right answer. Like I know it was. Well, and well, like, yeah. And what goes around comes around. But how do we and miss that? That's what, that's what gets about. me. And I think it's our fixation on fair policy. Yes. If I do this for you, what do I do? And like, we need to break that open. Humans are not like, there's a way to be equitable without any yeah. one size fits all. Well, and the money in the bank that not actual money, but the like trust money in the bank when you give people just a little bit of space is like immeasurable. Yeah. And like, I'm imagining wow, the, I'm imagining the sister's company says, you know, you just can't trust employees. They just take advantage. Totally. Like, like so now they've created the scenario where, of course, like she's going to get hers and like you treat somebody that way and then you complain that they don't trust you and they take advantage. Like you, it's like this, it's the, yes. you know, the, this, like you create the system. Well, did you guys see that video yeah. that was going around about um, that leader? Oh gosh, I, I'm embarrassed that I don't remember the name of the company, but it just was on like the socials today about um, this guy CEO who was forcing back to work, and he made this he made a bunch of kind of really mendacious and toxic statements in there. But one of them was about how he knew that in the past 30 days, 30 employees had not opened their laptops that remote work was failing for this reason. They weren't working at all. They were you know, doing something else. It was all about the low trust that you're talking about. And I just listened to this and I'm like, there is something else happening here, dude. If your people are not opening their laptops for 30 days, like what is it, what kind of relationship would my employees and I have if they actually didn't open their laptops every day? How, how would I, what does that say about how connected we are? how disconnected we are, how much I know. And I'm not saying the CEO knows what every worker is doing, but come on, that is not an example of- But what do you think, but now put yourself in the, not not in a good way. I'm just saying now you're that CEO, this guy, the one you're talking about, what's his story? But he doesn't see it that way. His story is what about those people? If he called me and said, I need a coach, I would say, let's go way back. Let's take a trip in the way back machine. What was happening way before these employees (laughs) didn't open their laptops? about why you did what you did and what they believe good looks like and how connected they are to tell you the truth of what's happening. Because we really don't know why they're not opening their laptop. We, we can agree it's not a good thing. Yeah, right? that's or, a problem. And that's a, you talk about right. data, that's a killer data story. Like it's yes. a good, what do you do with that data is a very different story. And that's, I think, a yes. lot of my work is like data can be used for good and bad. He's got some really solid data, but 
to your point, but my, my sense is his story is see, can't trust people. See, if you leave them alone and you're, you're, and I love what your approach is. And let's dig a little deeper, but that's this thing with leaders, especially people in positions of power and authority that don't have to look at these things. It's easy to create a story and then believe it without any pushback, but like, there's a deeper story. Like you're right. How did, could you imagine caring about a company and like opening your laptop for 30 days? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's a bigger problem. It's like, well, wait a second. When did I actually stop caring? When did I realize that nobody gave two craps what I did every day at work? And so, you know, if if nobody cares about me, am I going to bring my highest and best to work? No. If nobody's noticing what I'm doing, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm probably busy looking on a different machine for a different job. Probably a different machine. (laughs) I also think there's another uh, there's another piece here that I like around when I work with leaders, and that is this idea that this and we all do this a little bit this fixation on output, meaning like so a lot with our data like you know yeah. run an engagement survey the engagement score is the is the outcome factor meaning like if his problem is people aren't opening their laptops and he just starts putting in all these procedures and stuff to get people to open laptops and I would say what are the input factors trust care what are the things that you can focus on that are not as obvious that people will start to open their laptops because if the goal is just open their laptops he's going to institute some policy and now people are going to get the do you know there's like jigglers for your mouse now you've heard about these yeah, mouse like, do, 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 do. like if it just becomes like a game like that then then somebody's going to be like yeah they're going to pay somebody three dollars an hour to open their laptop in in some other country somewhere like <laughs> you know so what so to your point yes. if we're really trying to solve problems what are the input factors that will drive people to open their laptop more? What are the things, if I tell you your people aren't really proud, and that's one of the pieces of engagement, what lever do you pull on that? But if I know that, like, I know there's a relationship between how well you communicate with your employees and how they feel about engagement, go communicate with your employees better. Yes. Focus on the inputs yeah. that will drive that, test that, and if you're off, uh, fix that. Because when we start to focus on the outputs, that's where we get into a lot of trouble. You know, we just create other, I mean, there's like, you know, Wells Fargo is an example of like, well, we need more accounts, like at all costs. And then like, look what happened. It blew up. And, you know, and like a lot of, I think there's a lot of stories like that of be careful and like focus on, focus on the, the inputs that you think are going to drive the outputs that you want. Because when we focus on the outputs, we get a lot of weird, bad behaviors. I just think it's an, it's like a leftover fossil from work harder always. Like if I am working as hard, you should be working as hard. And if I'm working as hard, they should be working. <laughs> you know, like it's just like a leftover fossil of like working hard means you actually goodness. It's never proved to be true. Or maybe working questions. hard, at, working hard at the right things. It's almost like that pr- practice doesn't make better, but perfect practice. Like I love the idea of working hard, but like when you say that, I think what we're talking about is like work hard and burn yourself out on the things I want you to versus like, I think people yeah. want to work hard, like, but like yeah, at your exactly. family yeah. and at your life and like, you know, that you go to work and you feel like yeah. accomplishment at work and you feel you can go home and let it go and be with your family. And I, I agree with so everything that, yeah, you're saying. There's, there's just a flip on this idea of like motivate people. Yeah. We want to work. Hard. I mean, how many people have those cake jobs that they don't work hard and they're miserable? I, I have friends like this. <laughs> they're miserable. Yeah. Like, I don't do, well, I don't like, know. I've been there yeah. for 17 years. I just do this thing. And you can see their look on their face. There's like, I just want to get to retirement. I'm like, wow, you got it. You don't yeah. work hard. You're not that, you're not that happy. Well, one of the experiences we see all, all the time, and may I know that you and I have had a lot of conversations about this, is that when we do data, like for example, culture assessment, and we slice it demographically, one of the things we notice, for example, in the DEI space is that oftentimes the data looks very different based on the identity card you hold. And so, for example, the white people in a majority white company 
may feel the culture is extremely wonderful. They love everything about it. We look at the black or brown slices, the people that are identified as BIPOC are having a much more negative experience about the culture. So that's really interesting data. And But what happens with the insiders or the white people is that they are, they de- there's a data denying because the data that is measuring them is showing really high satisfaction. So how do we then expand that? Oh my story? gosh! Well, I mean, I know we're at the end of time here. Like we could talk. Yeah. This is this is my world. Like I, you know, running large data sets and sitting with leaders and talking. I mean, you're talking about DEI, but I mean, I, I've sliced it like by level. Like yes. leaders here, leaders here communicate in an open and transparent way. I love doing this with like senior leadership teams. If if they've loaded <laughs> in the strong numbers, and then I go, okay, like let's look at level three. 40 points, 30 points off. You can fight that all you want, but you have to go home that night and sit in bed and go, oh my gosh, like this bubble that we live in. And look, we all do, we all do this, by the way. You get like, if you're with your peers and everybody feels, if that's what the data tells us is you collectively believe this, that's fine. But I'm showing you like now there's a 20 point difference between what you believe and what your, your mid-level employees feel. Go sit with that for a minute. It just let them like, let it burst. It's the Fitbit. Like, oh, I get my steps in. Well, put a Fitbit on. I don't know. Oh shit, I'm getting 3,000 steps a day. I don't need to change your behavior. If you set it up right, you're going to change. If you really want to get 10,000 steps a day, I don't have to do much other than like put it in your face and let you blow your denial up. But it's not my job. Like if the data done the right way that they trust, it forces it back on them. So what I think what I'm hearing you say is if we can get it in front of them, we call it myth, we call it myth busting or myth validating. Like sometimes the data validates these stories. Sometimes the data blows the stories completely. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think. The data is really interesting for me because sometimes I'm like, how much data do we need to believe the voices that we hear? You know, like, can we just merge both? Can we be like, there's data and also you've been hearing it or maybe you haven't been hearing it. And that's also data. If silence is also data, you aren't safe to be able to hear that kind of stuff. And now you're seeing it in a 20 point difference. I think it's been really powerful to have tools like culture amps tools to quantify that because yeah. How, when you say how much data, the truth of the matter is I've talked to enough, even chief people officers, and if they intuitively have a sense and go fight with their leadership team, they're just a data point of one at that point. It's just my, yeah. you know, well, I think we should do they this. And the leader that. just goes, well, why? And like, I think we should do that. But if they sit down and they say, look, we've run this. We see there's a 30 point gap. We want to focus here. Here's how we can do it. Now, all of a sudden, you're not pushing against a data point of one, my opinion versus your opinion. It, it, you're yeah. pushing like, like you're telling a story with data. You're validating your story with data. And if, if you trust the data, if you trust that like the tools you're using, and how, that's probably the most powerful way to drive true change at scale in organizations, you know, where we lack so much, like so many times it's just an argument between we should do this, we should do that. We should do this, we should do that. And the truth yeah. of the matter is yeah. I would say to both of them, like, why? Why? Totally. You, know, you know, like our tool, our tool does the relationship yeah. between the question and the the outcome factor in our, this case, engagement. So many times there's a score that comes back really low that has no real relationship to engagement. But without that in knowledge, you would just say, well, that's our lowest scoring thing. Let's focus on that. And we might yeah. say, you know what, there's a yeah. point, there's something you scored higher on, but it's way bigger impact on engagement. I mean, compensation is an example. Compensation is historically one of the lowest scoring questions. It's also typically a very low driver of engagement. That can be a very expensive mm-hmm. thing to try to go after if you're not getting engagement. When really what people want is when people aren't showing up, mm-hmm. we do something about it is really the bigger driver of engagement, like focus on accountability at your organization. That's so interesting too, because it's often money, I feel like is the first thing. We're like, okay, well, just, you know, are you getting paid enough? You know, it's a very it's like, expensive you know, thing. That we're just like skipping, wrong. skipping. Okay. Craig, I have two more questions for you. I'm yeah. just going to trap you in this podcast a little bit longer with me. Yeah. My first one is what is the most provocative thing that you have said out there in the world 
that made your palms sweaty and you go, oh no, here I go. And you went straight off the cliff and just said the thing. I mean, what comes to mind is more of just about putting myself out there, you know, like Mo opened by saying that you know, with, with South by Southwest, how um, I was there talking about masculinity. The backstory there is that I did my own personal work. I, you know, I was like got involved and started a men's circle for many, many years. And it was a very private thing for me. I, did, I didn't, I'm not trying to be the advocate for masculinity or men or all that thing. I just simply did that work and, and had this deep belief that if you really roll back so many of the problems in our world and like that, if we can, if we can heal men, we can heal the world kind of thing. Like a lot of the changes, let's go to the source. And a lot of the changes and the challenges we have are men and masculinity in this world. So that was powerful to me, just that, just that perspective. And then seeing men do work and like step up and be more healthy. And like, it was really powerful in my life. I got to a company where I could be more open and honest, just at my company, you know? And so our head of DE and I, and I were close and he knew about that and we were building an event and he said, Craig, I want to do a panel on masculinity. And I was like, you're kidding. I like, I'm not, this is like, I love getting on stage, but I'm not interested in like, he was like, just trust me. Like, let's do this. Let's bring this to the forefront. Let's have this conversation. And I did. And um, it was, we did it at, at our, at our conference and it was partly trusting him because it was scary, but I trusted him. And I knew that like, he had a lot of respect in the industry and I was just going to follow his lead. So I just, when you were asking that question that came up, getting on stage in front of a diverse audience as a white, straight presenting male, cisgender, like talking about masculine having it. And, and, you know, we focused more on stories. We, you know, I shared my story and we had a couple other men to share their stories and it was a really powerful experience. So, which then when it was time to think about South by Southwest, I was like, what's my version of that? And we recreated it and like brought it to South by Southwest. And again, it was this, it was telling stories to help rethink stories of masculinity. It wasn't about pe preaching one or one or the other. Um, so, I mean, that's just, that was provocative. It was scary for me. And it was for me, to, it was very interesting because I love a stage. I know how I feel normally. And I just, it, my palms were sweaty. Like it was very, very vulnerable to get up on the stage and like expose myself like that especially four years mm -hmm. ago and step into that in this world that's very tricky or that stuff. Um, but really happy I did. So that's, I guess that's the answer mm -hmm. that comes up for me on that one. I love that answer. Okay. I thought of another question. Sorry. This one is like, where do you stand? We're going to do rapid fire here. Okay. Where do you stand? Do you think that leadership is a skill or do you think you're born to be a leader? Yes. No. <laughs> um, I, I think both, you know, like I think, I think, look, I love, I'm a, mu I'm a musician. I play, I play, I'm a guitar player. I loved it. I played it my whole life. I'm getting pretty good 30 something years in. <laughs> there are good people, there are people, Eddie Van Halen was doing what he did at 20 years old. Like, I think there are people that just are natural, like have it naturally. But I want to be careful with the question because I think it's it, 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 if it's binary, we think it's well. If I'm not that, I can't, and I don't buy that. I think that you can absolutely yeah. can work at it. You can be better. You can grow yourself as a person. Some people are coming out of the gate. They just naturally, whatever reason, that's just what they saw, who they are, their life experience, just are like, like amazing leaders. And they're you know Didier, who's you know, well into his late forties, our CEO now. You know, he's been an amazing. He founded our company. He's still the CEO. We're a thousand people. Were you know I, when I was there, but he was a CEO at a in, in Australia at a, um, a visual effects company prior at twenty six and relatively successful. So he came to us when he started this company in his thirties as a seasoned CEO. It blows my mind. At twenty six, I was just like I was like just trying to see see. He just had that ability. Oh, he yeah. was one of those people, and it's and now that in it well you know close to fort you know well into his forties, like it's played out, and he is a he's a great leader. But I just want to be careful. I don't want people to think I'm not. Therefore, I can't be. Like it's absolutely developed. You can develop it, and some people have it more naturally. But so I, I, I that's why I just said yes because I think 
they're, they're both true and some people fall in different areas, but I don't want people to stop or like, well, I'm just not that therefore I'm to be shitty. Like that's not cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's like, there's a false. I was, I was a crappy leader. Like, <laughs> I was an awful leader before yeah. I did my work, you know? No. I was. Well, yeah, back when. I think, yeah, that's like, you're either a good leader or a bad leader, I think is a false situation. Yes. It's like, you. that's where I think we're in the list. I had a lot of personal work. Like, As I look back in my better. career, when I wanted to be the boss, when I wanted to be the manager, when I wasn't like lit moving from, yeah. and um, I had a lot of stuff that I hadn't worked out. And looking back, I can see it now. So the point was, I think I've had it in me. I think I'm a great leader, but I also think that I had some some work to do that was getting in the way for many years. Yeah, there's a difference between being a boss and being a leader. There is so, a difference between being a boss and being a leader. Craig. Yes. This is the most important question of them all. Okay. We have an audience of brilliantly wonderful people, mm-hmm. and they're going to want to know how to support you. Mm-hmm. So will you be very specific and tell our audience how we can support your work? You can. First of all, I love LinkedIn. I like being there. I like to be connected. So if you hear this and you want to like connect me in a light way, please come like follow me. Leave me a note. Tell me you heard this. So like, don't just hit like connect. Like, leave me a note. Sometimes it goes straight to that. But if you can do your best, leave me a note. Tell me why. The second is you want to support me. Look, I've told you about all the work I've done over the years. As I mentioned, I've recently begun consulting and wanting to bring more of this to the world, either through facilitation experience design, which I've done a lot of speaking, but most importantly, like consulting organizations and helping bring data and help organizations understand how to bring data to the conversation around driving healthy cultures. And I think a lot of what we talked today has been around that. Like, let's, let's quantify, let's talk about this, what's real, what's not. Um, www.culturecraig.com is, is my website. Please go there and like either send, you know, give me your email address, or if you want to get in touch, I'll have a, a form there where you can, you know, reach out to me. That's the best way is like be in this world with me, um, stay connected. And then the, the other one is look, this community that we built at Culture Amp, the Culture First community is amazing, but this is more about you than mm-hmm. it is about me. That we've built this network, a global network of people that want to have these conversations. If you go to www.chapters.culturefirst.com or go to cultureamp.com and go to community, you can learn more. There's We have a 20,000 person Slack channel that's well managed and facilitated. Right. We have these chapters where you can find people closer to home or virtual groups. Be in community. We talked about this idea of you know, the inertia break and being able to recreate everything. You can't do it alone. Like we need to like sync up with each other and make this a very powerful force of driving change in our workplaces. And that's what that community is about. We've set it up. Uh, You know, I put a lot of work and energy into it myself over the years and it's there for you. So go give to get and be part of that. But that's, so those are the, those are the things I'd share. Bravo. Craig, thank you so much. May, it was good to meet you. It's been a delight. We sincerely hope you are enjoying listening to the Let's Make Work Human podcast. At Momentum, we believe that everyone deserves to thrive at work, and we are on a mission to make every workplace good for people. It really helps if you share the podcast in your network, leave a review wherever you listen, and like or download your favorite episodes. We want to get our message into the hands of more business owners and brave people leaders with the power for change. Thank you so much for being a loyal listener.